So Psalm 32 is, it's got to be in the top three of my favorite psalms, and I, and I uh, hope that by the end of the sermon today, you will really see why. So we began this series on the psalms, the way the psalms start. They are directing us to a life of happiness, which we see in Psalm chapter 1 means that you are delighting in the law of God. And in Psalm 2, we see that those who are blessed and happy and prosperous are those who take their refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of God. I'm going to talk a lot today about happiness and if you weren't here for that first sermon, I would encourage you to, uh, when it's available, we're having some technical difficulty with the audio. But the idea of happiness is not um, just this element of a superficial uh, kind of emotion. Um, happiness is the possession of, a, of an inner peace and confidence with yourself and with the world around you that empowers you to, to actively engage life with interest, okay? So there's some curiosity and some delight in, in what you're involved with in the world, and you're bringing some skillfulness to it. Um, and then that in return brings fruitfulness, joy, and satisfaction. So that's kind of a, I'll read that again. Hap, to be happy is to possess an inner peace and confidence with oneself and the world that empowers one to actively engage life with interest and skill, bringing fruitfulness, joy, and satisfaction to one's life. And this is, this is what Jesus Christ brings to us, um, even in the midst of suffering and challenge. Now, again, the audio is not available. If, I, if you'd like me to send you the transcript, maybe I'll just even post the transcripts of the sermons uh, online so that you can read it and, and think about that one a little bit more because when I'm, as I talk about happiness, it's important that you understand really what, what God is, is doing here. Um, if we consider the possibility of happiness and ask ourselves the question, okay, maybe I'm not experiencing that. <laughs> Why? What is prohibiting me from experiencing happiness? Why am I not happy? There are probably a lot of things that we could come up with. Our list would probably be a lot of things that are external. Okay? Here are all the things being done to me that are prohibiting me from being happy. And I'm not discounting the fact that there are external things in our lives that make us unhappy. It's true. But today we want to look at the things that we do have control over. Uh, we want to look at the things that are internal, not external, to our experience of happiness. And I, and I think that we, after thinking and maybe contemplating and evaluating things a little more carefully, we, we, we can probably see that a lot of our lack of happiness is primarily due to what we do have control of and what's really coming from the inside. So the psalm begins with two strong statements about what makes a happy person. They say essentially the same thing. So the Psalms are known for their parallelism. They'll say one thing, and then they'll say it again in a little bit different way to, for emphasis. So the two statements, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now again, if, if, um, if the, for some reason there's apprehension in, in English translators to just go ahead and translate the term happy, right? Because that's really the term. Happy is the one, not blessed, happy. Uh, that's a very different thing. I mean, when I say happy, you don't think, oh, a person is blessed by God. But when I say blessed, you think a person is blessed by God. But that's, it's not wanting to communicate that the person is blessed by God. Now, to understand happiness, obviously, it is a person that's blessed by God, and we're going to learn how, why today. But when you say happy, it actually it propels you, and I think it draws our interest much quicker. Like, we would all acknowledge that we're blessed by God. Yes, God has blessed us. We know Jesus Christ, etc., etc., etc. I have food, clothing, and shelter, and with these things I am content, or at least I'm supposed to be. But if we were to ask ourselves, am I happy? That was, that's a little bit more challenging question to answer, I think, rather than am I blessed? I want to make a couple observations. Um, The text is clearly saying, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So we need to understand, what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to be forgiven? I think that we have a shallow idea of forgiveness, or maybe not a very clear or technical understanding of forgiveness. And so we think maybe it's just a, it's a divine will or act of God, and it is an act of God, but there are some specificity to it that we really need to understand. Literally, the word forgiveness means to take hold of, lift up, and carry away. That's what the word forgiveness means. So when our transgressions are forgiven, they are lifted up, Our transgressions are violations of God's law. Those transgressions, they are lifted up and they are carried away as if we had never committed them in the first place. It also has this idea of being covered up. Now, most of us, when we do something wrong and we know it's wrong, we like to hide it. We don't want to expose it. And so within that, we can see and acknowledge that we would like to cover up ourselves and hide And that's part of the idea of forgiveness. It's covered up. But we can't hide it. And we can't lift it up and carry it away ourselves. We can't leave ourselves, whereas our sins are removed from us. We compromise our consciences when we hide it. But when God covers it up, it's truly hidden. And then so the the transgressions are removed, the transgressions are carried away, they're covered up. But also, the guilt, what this, this passage calls the iniquity, things that are a consequence of the transgression. He lifts up and carries away and covers over also the sense of guilt. And with guilt comes shame, and with shame comes fear, fear of punishment, fear of being found out. So the the transgressions, the guilt, the sense of having done something wrong, the very sins themselves, the guilt of the sin, the shame of the sin, the fear of punishment, the fear of others finding out, those things have been lifted up, 
carried away, and covered over. And this brings about a clearing of our conscience. Brings about a clearing in our conscience. We can think of ourselves in an uncompromised, in a true way. Because those things have been taken care of. Yeah, we've committed the transgression, we committed the sins. Yes, we're guilty. Yes, we've, we've experienced shame and fear. But in forgiveness, all of these things are removed. They are no longer counted against us. So that's what it means to be forgiven. The second thing I want to point out is that if, if you can see here, so the unhappy man, the unhappy person is the person whom the Lord is counting these things against that person. And so you see a dynamic in here that the Lord is actually um, active in being against those whose sins are not forgiven. The Lord is against the unhappy person. So the psalmist, after making these two strong statements, then kind of does a little bit of a, of a retelling. He remembers a time when he wasn't happy, when his sins weren't forgiven or covered, and when he felt the Lord was against him. He says that when he kept silent, so what does that mean? Well, he was aware of his sin, he committed it, and it doesn't get specific on what the sin is. God is obviously aware of the sin because it's God, but the person is keeping silent. The person isn't acknowledging. He did not acknowledge what he had done wrong. He didn't confess or admit what he had done wrong. And so internally, this creates what the passage calls deceit in the heart um, and a a spirit that is not straight. It is a crooked spirit. So to acknowledge and confess is to bring out into the open what is being kept secret because we don't want to bring out what is transgressive what speaks bad of us, what would show how, how bad we are. But when we keep these things inside, we become crooked and bent and twisted. And then this leads to this, this internal conflict uh, in addition to, so it's important to see here that this is in addition to um, pressure that God himself brings upon us when we remain silent. So we have Two forces present, a a twisted and crooked, deceitful heart and mind, and an active God who is bringing pressure. Now, if you just look at how the psalmist describes it, there are at least five things that I see as a consequence of this internal turmoil and of God's pressure. Anxiety which is known to be America's most significant mental health issue. Um, A loss of vitality, okay? Whereas, you know, from the first sermon, I described that one of the definitions of happiness or the aspect of the definition of happiness is that we have this flow to life, right? A life flow that's gone in the person who's experiencing this inner turmoil and the pressure from God. There's a feeling of being overwhelmed, There is exhaustion, and there is depression. 
Those are at least five you know, mental health challenges that you see that this psalmist is, is describing. Now, there are lots of reasons why people experience these things. But, but I think that we've got to recognize and acknowledge and agree with that hiding our sins, hiding our sins creates substantially strong psychological forces that if, if left to fester will contribute to and even cause substantial mental health problems. And here we see that God is adding to the mental and physical strain. God is doing it. When we let sin and deceitfulness and crookedness remain inside of us, God is going to be at work to pressure, pressuring us to remove those. Some of you, I'm sure, have read uh, Augustine's Confessions. If you haven't, and are wanting to become increasingly skillful at probing the depths of your own mind and conscience, I would encourage you to read Augustine's Confessions. Um, but I want to read a portion from it. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it, I wanted to include all of it because he is so descript, uh, and it is so clear of his experience of this exact same thing that the psalmist is describing. Both love and lust boiled within me and swept my youthful immaturity over the precipice of evil desires to leave me half-drowned in a whirlpool of abominable sins. In speaking to God, he says this, Your wrath has grown mighty against me, and I knew it not. I had grown deaf from the clanking of the chain of my mortality, the punishment for the pride of my soul. And I departed further from you, and you left me to myself. And I was tossed about and wasted and poured out and boiling over in my fornications. And you were silent, O oh my late one joy. You were silent, and I, arrogant and depressed, weary and restless, wandered further and further from you into more and more sins which could bear no fruit save sorrows. I foamed in my wickedness, following the rushing of my own tide, leaving you and going beyond all your laws. Nor did I escape your scourges, and I love this, no mortal can. You were always by me, mercifully hard upon me and besprinkling all my illicit pleasures with certain elements of bitterness to draw me on to seek for pleasures in which no bitterness should be. And where was I to find such pleasures save in you, Lord? You who use sorrow to teach and wound us to heal and kill us, lest we die to you. Where then was I, and how far from the, from the delights of your house? Get this. In that 16th year of my life in this world, when the madness of lust, needing no license from human shamelessness, receiving no license from your laws, 
took complete control of me, and I surrendered wholly to it. That's like, it's, it's incredible the descriptiveness that he, that he has. And the entire Confessions is like that. It's just really tremendously helpful in articulating some of the feelings that we have when we are in this place of internal conflict and self-deception and the hand of God is upon us. So weary and exhausted from this pressured state, the psalmist, the psalmist finally acknowledges his sin, admits his, admits his guilt, and confessed his transgression to God. And upon this confession, God lifted up and carried away his transgression, his guilt, his shame, his fear, making him a happy person. One of the things that I'm really enjoying in this, this time through the Psalms is seeing that, and Ecclesiastes has this all the way through, God is the giver of happiness. And after recalling this tragic episode in his life, the psalmist then starts to give us some instruction. He says, okay, those of you who are, I think the text reads godly, he says, those of you who are literally, it's of faith. Those of you who have faith in God can benefit from this instruction. If you're here listening to this and you don't have faith in God, faith in God is a possibility. You can find refuge in him. In the midst of, if you're experiencing this, if there's some weight of sin that you have been pressured with, and you know that it's wrong, and it's creating that inner turmoil, and you'd like some way out of it, the psalm is telling you to find refuge in God. Believe that God can forgive. Believe that he can lift up, carry away, and cover over your sin and the shame and the guilt and the fear. Echoing the teaching of the Proverbs, he exhorts the reader then to offer prayer when God can still be found. So here's the idea. He says, listen, there's going to be some rushing waters coming in. And if you wait till those rushing waters come in and completely flood you over, it might be a little too late. Not to find God from a salvation standpoint, but to experience deliverance and to experience happiness. The idea is that we can go so long in the downward spiral of our sin that we wait so long and God's not going to deliver us. We can come to know him. If you are alive and want to know God, you can believe in the gospel and you will be saved. But happiness does indeed have something to do with what's going on in our lives, right? We can bring calamity upon ourselves that takes us a long time to dig out of. And God can give us a sense of joy and comfort and peace in that process, but it is still, happiness is still going to be a pretty significant struggle. Uh, the Proverbs teach the same thing. Proverbs chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 3. Wisdom is calling aloud in the streets for all of the naive young people to come. You know, Augustine is 16 when he's describing himself as 16 years old. It, between those ages of like 14 and 15 and 25, you know, we're so naive and stupid and youthful. But you know what? That's where we make so many mistakes that we spend the rest of our lives trying to deal with, right? That's why the Proverbs are so strong at the beginning. My children, listen to your parents. 
My children, listen to your... He's not talking to three-year-olds. He's talking to people that are in this stage where they're living life on their own. And they've got the options before them. They need to heed their parents' instructions anyway. He's saying, offer prayer to God before the rushing waters come in and it's too late. God is waiting for us to offer prayers of confession. God is waiting for us so that he can give us happiness. He says, you are a hiding place. And while God is a hiding place who preserves us from the pain of spiraling out of control, he can overwhelmingly provide deliverance. But he's encouraging us to do that before it's too late. But again, God is able to provide peace and joy even in the midst of great suffering. So then he says, listen, don't be like a mule and don't be like a horse. I've only ridden a horse. I've seen a mule. I don't have that much experience with them, but I can definitely have observed, and I'm sure our our horse folks here will be able to give us a lot more detailed instruction. Um, Oftentimes you have to use a bridle and a bit to get that horse to do what it needs to do. But oftentimes, if you kind of get to know the horse, I'm, I'm assuming this, you can be gentle and it knows the master and, you know. He said, listen, don't be like a stubborn donkey. Don't be like a stubborn horse. God will work in your conscience through his spirit. God will work gently with you at the beginning. But eventually, as... Augustine came to know, and the psalmist came to know, and I'm sure all of us have come to know, uh, if God needs to, he's going to apply that heavy hand of pressure until, until you break. Augustine said, you kill us so that we don't die to you. And he concludes the psalm by saying, Rejoice, shout, celebrate. You know, I was, I was confessing some weaknesses and sins and challenges to the elders this week in my own life. And uh, one of the th- challenges I have is my own independence. And I see independence very significantly in the lives of my children. I know that my own sins of independence have contributed to my children's independence and strong-headedness. And then one of the elders just said, you know, George, yeah, you're independent. Yeah, you can be pretty strong-headed. But you are so quick to come to us and expose and tell us what's going on in your life. I said, well, I learned a long time ago that the greatest joy and delight in this world is a clear conscience. And I never want to live without one. So in our pursuit of happiness, it's a cause of celebration. It is truly what gives life the joy and meaning and happiness from God. And just as God is active in pressing us to confess our sins, God is active in delivering us happiness and peace. So there's a few practical things. A few practical things as we come to close here. In, in regard to being upright in heart, 
We see at the beginning where he says, in whose heart is no deceit, and at the end it says, those who are upright in heart give joy and thanks and praise and celebration. We can use our, our hearts, our consciences, they become a means through which we can evaluate where we're at. Do we have a clear conscience? Is there something inside of us that if we were to reveal, seemingly would bring upon a lot of reproach and an accusation? And we know what those things are. And this, this knowledge of our transgression, we, we condemn ourselves in it. If we don't confess it, that deceit, that inner condemnation, and the mental health challenges that come with this duplicitous and double-minded self really begin to emerge. And knowing it, and sometimes we know, but then we get into this mental game. We justify what we did, we minimize what we did, we excuse what we did, but in our hearts we know. We just don't want to admit it. And this, this, this game that goes on inside of us, what we're longing for is integrity of our hearts, but our consciences and the Spirit of God and, our, and really our, we know what we did. And though we long for integrity in our hearts, we, we can't weasel ourselves into that place. God won't let us. And really our hearts won't let us either and our consciences. It's kind of strange if you think about it because it, to live this way is to live in, in disagreement with our very selves. We are at war with ourself. And we are at war with God. And I think, <laughs> this is where the self-evaluation comes in, I think that we're aware of when that's going on, right? It's not something that is obscure or out there. We know that when we are in, we, we know when we are in inner conflict. In the knowledge of that inner conflict that should press us, that should press us to confession. How long can we keep up with that struggle? We can keep up with it for years. In regard to forgiveness, so we know it, it means to lift up, take away, cover over the sin, the guilt of the sin, the shame of the sin, the fear of the sin, and its consequences, the reproach. But it's still kind of I think it still can be kind of a challenging idea. Now, readers of the law, the original readers of the psalm, the readers of the word of God would have had in their minds this imagery of all of the sacrifices that Israel had to make to cover over and atone for their sin. But there's one image in particular that I think is really helpful. And they did this once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And so they took two goats and they sacrificed one of the goats and that would provide atonement for the priests in the holy place. Okay, so that with the sins of the, of the priests and the sins of the vessels and the, the materials used to make atonement for sin were atoned for. And then they would take a live goat and the sins of the nation would be put on the, heads, the head of that live goat and the live goat, this is, this is what it means to be a scapegoat, that live goat would be sent out of the camp. Leviticus 16, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron, who is the priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Every year they would do this. Now the goat sacrifice has ended. Jesus became the last and final sacrifice. He became the final scapegoat. Our sins weren't just lifted up and carried away and covered over by some divine act of God. Just, oh, their sins are forgiven. No. The burden of our sins had to be lifted up by someone, carried away by someone, and covered over by someone. And that someone was Jesus Christ. And the reason that God can give us a clear conscience, the reason that God can give forgiveness, the reason that God can give us happiness, is because Jesus Christ fulfilled the just requirements of the law and satisfied the wrath of God. It's not as if it was just kind of blown away. Jesus took it. And that is so pow- there's enough power in that that every human being that has ever lived or will ever live has the possibility of that sin covering over the, that of Jesus's covering over their sin. And every person who has ever lived or ever will live can experience the happiness of God because it was enough. It was enough. Lastly, what does it mean to confess? Literally, it just means to acknowledge and admit guilt. It doesn't mean that you know you're guilty. It means that you admit that you're guilty. Now, who do we admit to? The psalm clearly says that our responsibility and our need for confession is first and foremost to God. We are to come clean with God and really our own selves. And it is God who provides forgiveness, an upright heart, and happiness. Now, we also see in James chapter 5, confess your sins to each other and you will be healed. Now, the healing is that, is that some sort of um, mental anguish, which are substantial physical challenge? Is that the kind of healing that James was referring to? Or is, has God leveled affliction upon them in some form of sickness in order for them as a community to come to repentance? The sins that they were committing in James, the book of James are sins that they're committing to, against each other, and it was creating division and conflict in the, in the community there. So in that context, they are to not only confess their sins to God, but also to confess their sins to one another because they aren't in unity with each other. And so we, we need to do both. We need to confess our sins to God, and at times we need to confess our sins to one another. We are the ones with the double minds and deceitful hearts. God knows, God knows our sin, obviously, just like the psalmist knew his. We have to confess to each other if we have sinned against each other. But we can't see that confession to one another is the same as or replaces the confession to God. For some reason, we can kind of jump over that. Because in, the, in confessing to God, we have to acknowledge that, one, that he is our Lord and our authority and that our transgressions have ultimately been against him. We're going to see that in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is wrong in your sight. So we, we are indebted to God, first and foremost, in our transgressions and have to deal with that with him. But, you know, but there's, a, there's a powerful spiritual force 
in deception and in our flesh and in the, the spirit of the world. Uh, the scriptures teach that we are under the control of the spirit of the world until, until we have Christ. And that spirit of the world is the devil, the enemy, actively at work to push us away from God and in working in our hearts and minds. And so there's a strong resistance to confess to God. And we can hold on to that for a long time. Sometimes we need to confess to each other, not because we've sinned against somebody, but because for some reason, when we have to confess to a person, it becomes more real. And it really, I think some of us think lightly of God or maybe don't have the sensitivity of conscience to God. But when we're in front of a real person, that the idea of exposure and the exposure of, and, the, and the possibility of shame and fear and, and, and opening, up, opening up to accusation and being vulnerable, all those things cause us to not confess. But if you, if you confess to a person, those things are kind of all faced head on. And the person kind of provides that. So I think that's, if, if you find that confessing to God and then to a person is, is a process that's helpful to you, I would encourage them that. And sometimes I think confessing to others also helps us process that inner turmoil because sometimes we go so long, so long in not acknowledging or confessing sins that we've committed that our thinking and our distortions, they just start to mount and add up over the years. And we literally get to a point to where we can't really think straight about ourselves and about our sin. What's right? What's wrong? Am I experiencing real guilt? Am I experiencing false guilt? Uh, am I thinking about somebody that has sinned against me? Or is it the sins that I've committed? Or is there some weird combination of both that I'm responsible for as well? And you need help processing that. And that's the point of really the point of redemption group is that it's a place where you know you've got inner turmoil, you know you've got some stuff to deal with, but you just can't do it on your own resources. Some people can. Most of us can't. And it really helps to have that kind of a context. Lastly, in our confessions to God or others, we sometimes think that partial exposure we do the trick. We'll do the trick. So, you know, if somebody, you know, we, we see when people are under the weight of guilt, shame, and sin, and we know that they just need to confess some, something. So sometimes, sometimes we just confess a little bit to let the pressure off. And the people around us will think, okay, they've confessed, but really we haven't completely come clean. That doesn't work. Eventually it catches up. The weight of the sin, the inner turmoil, the mental health issues, and the pressure from God is still there. And lastly, it's not our act of confession that brings forgiveness. We cannot put our trust in that act of confession. We put our trust in God. The act of confession is acknowledging the truth that God knows and is trying to work into our lives. We put our trust in God. That's why this passage ends, those who put their trust in God experience this happiness. If we just go through the act, but don't understand the grace and the kindness, or believe 
believe that that grace and kindness is for us, that our sins can indeed be lifted up, carried out, carried out, and covered over. If we don't believe that, you could confess all day long and never experience relief or happiness.